The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Cliff Schechter. I am filling in for Leslie Marshall once again today. That first hour was Mark Grimaldi. Did a great job. I am a completely different guy, though. And uh, we'll have a couple great guests coming up. First, we're, we're lucky enough to have with us the one, the only fantastic Mike Papantonio, who I believe should be on the line. Mike, are you with us? You there, Mike? I am. How are you, Cliff? I'm doing well, man. How are you doing? Good, thanks. So, um, in this very, very normal political year, where nothing strange is happening at all, uh, you decided that you would write a fantastic book, which I am I'm going through, I'm lucky enough to be reading through right now, um, and in the end, I think what you're doing in your book is, is somewhat more plausible than what we're actually all living through right now. Yeah, Law and Disorder, Cliff, I wrote for a lot of reasons, but one of them is, you know, I've been, as you know, you and I have been doing media together for 17 years on and off, and and, and in there you, 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 you learn all the political stories and you learn all the political backstories. Law and Disorder takes a, th- it's a thriller, it's a legal thriller, and what it does is it takes all those parts and it weaves into, like, the, 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 the headlines, the news feed of the day, ties it into a story, but it's the same news feed we've always heard about. It is corporate America gone crazy. It is yeah. controlled by the oligarchs in the U.S. It has all those parts, but it's just it's weaved into a, a thriller. Yeah, well, and, and uh, obviously they always say write about what you know. So uh, obviously I started looking through it, seeing some of the similarities. Nicholas Dicotomus, um, who uh, has a bit, a bit of a name, one could say a Greek-sounding name like yours. Um, Actually, I'm Italian, but... (laughs) See? (laughs) So I'm already making ethnic mistakes. Uh, I'm like Donald Trump. I'm not politically correct. You know that. (laughs) Okay, so let's try part two. Um, But this part I know. Tough-minded lawyer from uh, from Florida, Pensacola area, who takes on corporations and and really isn't uh, scared of anyone. That, to me, sounds a lot like you. Well, the cases um, in there, Cliff, they are they are they're true. I mean, the cases that are talked about, they've they've been made into, as I say, a, a, a thriller with a murder involved. But you know, it's impossible to write a novel and not have some parts of yourself involved. But actually, oh, of the course, main, the main the main characters, though, Cliff, are really a composite of some of the best trial lawyers that I've worked with over the last 35 years that have handled, they don't, these aren't lawyers who handle single event auto cases. These are lawyers who handle the biggest, the biggest mass tort cases, the biggest criminal uh, defense cases in the country. And so yeah. that, that's kind of the composite of this, of Nicholas Thomas, And the rest of the characters are somewhat uh, composites as well. 
But I think the the main reason the, the reason I think it's 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 an unusual novel is that you know you get to sit on a beach and read a story that hopefully keeps you entertained and it keeps the pages turning. But when you come away, you say, "Well, I really didn't know that about the Koch brothers. I really didn't know that about the pharmaceutical industry. I had no idea that the that the FDA was so dysfunctional. I had no idea that the EPA was so dysfunctional. So or the or the justice system. I I had no idea that it's been so packed with conservative right wing judges for the right. last uh, 30 years. Well, and, and, and seriously, I, I hope you didn't take that the wrong way. My, my only point was, you know, you know this territory. I've worked with you, you know, I've been on your political show. I've worked with you doing some work for the National Trial Lawyers, an organization you're the president of. So when it comes to, to trial law, it comes to taking on big companies, when it comes to the, any political issue of the day, what's going on in anywhere from Congress to, to Tallahassee, you know, I mean, this is this is your area, and you know, let me compliment you for a second because uh, I tend to like books that combine some of these various elements. They're thrillers, but if you love po- the political world and the legal world, you know, and so in a way, it reminds you that way of some of the things like what John Grisham has done because you knew, you know, when you read him, he served in the Mississippi State House. Uh, you know, he's a guy that's a lawyer, and so he knows the world of politics, he knows the world of, of law, and so he knows what he's talking about, and he brings in. These characters that you might believe are larger than life, but then you see you, when you go out and you live life as we have in this world, again, I think everybody's getting a case of it right now with Donald Trump. You see that these types of characters, be they good or nefarious, they're out there, you know, and, and that's what I find that you do in this book also, uh, yeah, which I think is, makes it really fascinating. Well, well, thank you, Cliff. It's a series of three books. Uh, the idea is... Listen, if you tried, if if any of those stories that were told in there, and by the way, they're all true except for the murder part, but if I were to call NBC or CBS today and I said, listen, I have a story about a drug that's killed a thousand women last year, and I have the documents where they admit that they killed a thousand women unnecessarily with a defective drug, would you please do the story? And they would say, no, we can't do the story because our advertisers won't let us. That's propaganda media. And so propaganda media has overtaken corporate media. These stories that I'll be talking about in these books are all true. These are actually cases that I've handled uh, and friends of mine have handled. And the truth is when you read them, you go, my God, that can't be true. Well, they are true. And the, the, the problem is corporate media will not tell them because you have some cat on the 50th floor with an MBA saying you may not tell the story because we'll lose an advertiser if you do that. It's the state of, it's the state of modern media right now, Cliff. And so you have mm-hmm. to get under the way that you get at them. You, you go after them through, through uh, social media very effectively. This is just another, this is another iteration of that. How do you tell the stories in a way that people might actually hear it and remember it and do something about it? Well, yeah, and that's what I've always loved. You've never backed down, and some of the guys who, you know, I've met at the, 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 these conferences you throw through the National Trial Lawyers, you're willing to stand up and take on some of these guys who at these corporations. And, and, and that is a very interesting thing, you know, that you bring up here, which is we're all watching it with this presidential election right now. And after, in a little bit, we can talk somewhat about that too. But, um, you know, when you see that the, it's not just about, uh, you know, which candidate or whatever, it's, it's how much they choose to cover a particular story or not cover it, right. ignore it, you know. Right. Um, and you've been on these. I, I think of something, a movie like The Insider, you know, and this reminds me of, of that, too, where you're trying to tell a story about tobacco and corporate goes to the, the news people 60 Minutes and says, uh-uh, you know, we can't risk a, a lawsuit. We don't want to lose the advertising. 
And, I mean, again, you see it again and again. You've been involved, as you said, in these pharmaceutical cases, tobacco, oil, uh, you know, God knows how many others. And, and this, this seems to be a real problem uh, in our democracy right now. There are just certain stories that, at least in the biggest, more, you know, biggest networks, cannot be told. Yeah, and it's, it's unfortunate because I don't see any change taking place. I, when you did your book on McCain, I thought it was interesting that you, you did take a little bit of a take on how difficult it was to get the real story about John McCain out there. Your book did that, but before your book, nobody, nobody knew those stories. And so the problem, the problem is, is social media or radio programs just like this, it's, 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 it's gotten to the point to where you have millennials that have so much faith in this alternative media. They have so yep. much faith in it, and they should. They should have faith in it because they, they realize that corporate media is no longer anything. It, it's, it's unrecognizable as journalism. In, in 1985, there were, I think, 55, almost 60 independent news organizations that delivered the magazines and newspapers and radio and television. Today, they're four. Arguably, in a perfect world, you could say they're five. So all right. of that becomes the clearinghouse for every bit of information that people read. And so Grisham, as you pointed out, tell stories, hopefully the same way that I told stories here, that you read and you go, my God, I can't believe the justice system is in that bad of shape. I can't believe that this regulator actually did that. I can't believe that politics and government got made a trade-off for consumers' lives in exchange for money. So all of those things are part of law and disorder, and uh, they'll be part of the second and the third book as well, where these characters are rounded out even more and, and new stories are told. Well, I'm excited for that. I want to talk more about this and about the election uh, after this quick break, Mike. Thanks again for being with us. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Once again, this is Cliff Schechter. I'm filling in for Leslie Marshall on the Leslie Marshall Show. It's a nice, sunny 75, 80-degree day here in Cincinnati. I hope wherever you are, it's uh, pleasant as well. We're lucky enough to be joined by Mike Papantonio, who has now added, or no, I think in the previously had added author. Now you're multiple times author to top-notch trial lawyer, president of the National Trial Lawyers, radio host, entrepreneur. Anything I'm missing there, Mike? <laughs> I think you covered it. Thank you. <laughs> um, when you when we went to break, we were talking about it, and I think you're right. Your book uh, delves into these issues, very important issues, because I often think that some you know these days sometimes you guys who are trial lawyer, trial lawyers, the last line of defense. Um, we would we need in a democracy people to be educated about what some of these companies are doing. It doesn't seem to happen anymore, and I, you know I don't I think the point you made can't be made enough times, which is. What you said in the 1980s about the number of 60 media companies down to four or five, um, you know, we used to have a fairness doctrine, which is now gone. Uh, we used to have, there used to be something where because the, the, the big stations got their licenses for free from the government, there was this expectation they provide actual news. It was a public good, and it wasn't something that you tried to get make profits on, right? It wasn't about ratings. Yeah. Uh, where did all this go wrong? 
Well, I mean, the the Telecommunications Act probably was the most serious. It was like um, everybody with the most money could come in and buy up everybody else with the least money. And so you started seeing newspapers disappear, radio, television, you name it. And it, be, it became consolidated to where it is, it is one-speak journalism. If you turn the stations between CNN and MSNBC and ABC and you, carried, you looked at the top story, they would all be saying the same thing. And that doesn't mean that that's real news. As they're talking about Kim Kardashian and what she wore to the latest ceremony, award ceremony, they won't talk about the fact that you've got the, the, the effort to stop a pipeline, pipeline by the Navajo Indians. They won't talk about the fact that the planet is melting. They won't talk about that Wall Street stole $18 trillion from us. They won't talk about the idea that every year pharmaceuticals kill, you know, thousands of people that they can't tell the story because their advertisers won't let them. So what's happened is it's it's actually part of the you know the whole uh the whole movement towards this centralized oligarchy which is uh, you've got to have the media. You know they understood the the people with money understood they had to control the media and then they had to control politics most of the time and then they had to control money. So all of these things fit together. I mean it, you know when Hillary Clinton was talking about this you know, maybe six years ago, they, you know, she would she would raise this issue, and they'd say, "Oh, you know, she's a conspiracy nut." Well, no, she's not, and she wasn't then, and she's not now. And truthfully, all this is the chickens have come to roost now. The average American is suffering because of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, everybody from uh, Thomas Jefferson and on to many other of the great leaders in this country talked. I've always talked about the fact that if we don't have an educated populace. That's what's necessary in democracy. You can't make decisions if the media doesn't tell you the truth, doesn't give you context when they tell what's going on. This he said, she said these days of, you know, I could, we could have, you know, because you talked about the earth melting, climate change. You know, it doesn't matter that 98, 99% of scientists say it's happening. The other ones are cranks, generally paid by Exxon, but that's another story. You know, if you want, if you want to accurately convey that, I think Stephen Colbert did this once to be funny. He had like 98 on one side and like two on the other. But instead, <laughs> they do one versus one, and yeah. everybody believes that the context is is that this is a 50-50 argument, and we have these arguments all the time on so many issues. Yeah, we got to tell um, both sides, and that's journalism. Most journalists, I, I forgot, maybe uh, I'm trying to think of who, who said it. Maybe somebody listening can can tell you, but they said that they, even even in the 40s, they said most of the time a journalist doesn't know the, the difference between a story and a bicycle. It's even worse now because the journalists coming through school, A, they're not given permission to tell the stories. B, they're usually unequipped to tell the stories because they, they really haven't had much of a uh, they haven't had the type of education, type of literary education that has them thinking in big terms. I mean, most of them don't, you know, have abandoned the idea that Steinbeck is still relevant or that Conrad is still relevant because they never read the books. So how right. do you convert that to them telling a news story that has any meaningful impact on our culture or on democracy or on our society? And it's a really unfortunate. It is the demise of journalism in the truest sense. And the idea that we've become infotainment is that, that that's an old word now. It's old. Yep. It's, it's not even, it's beyond infotainment. It's absolutely, absolutely propaganda. And the last vestige of hope 
lies with you and uh, and shows like this and and in and, and social media. Uh, millennials know that. Millennials aren't sitting in, in daddy's chair, uh, you know, sit back listening to the nightly news anymore. They don't really care what the nightly news has to say, thank goodness. So there is a cultural shift, and hopefully, uh, you know, there'll be some good come out of that. Yeah, I mean, we I feel like we simply have to do it through, a, you know, the, the outlets available that are, that are part of more of a part of a decentralized media that's not that aren't owned by the big guys. I wonder, you know, is there is there any way you think to put that genie back in the bottle? I was throwing out some ideas on Twitter yesterday. They may be completely crazy for all I know, but you know, something like bringing back the fairness doctrine was one idea. Another idea, which is by law, trying to do what we used to do by custom, which is to take the to take profit out of the news business um, and say, look, you, you, go ahead. Yeah, first of all, I think, Cliff, we have to be honest about what happened. You know, this idea of holding Bill Clinton up is this just fabulous president that was always there for the consumer. Bill Clinton knew exactly what he was doing with the Telecommunications Act. He understood that it was an invitation for the people with money to trounce on the people without money, and he understood exactly what he was doing. The reason he did it is because he thought he could control, if he could consolidate, you know, some of the opinions that, you know, he's a pretty good talker, and he thought he could control that in so many ways that they would love him. Well, they didn't love him. They tried to destroy his presidency, and to this day, they don't love him. But the, no. it, it, it was... Uh, it, Nor it, his it, wife. Yeah, yeah. He was he was misled by the idea, let me pass this telecommunications act. Just same thing with Glass-Steagall that he did with Wall Street, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say that, because there are some elements to his presidency, especially early on, you know, family leave and some of these that I really, you know, the, the chip program once they failed with health care where he seemed to get it. But later on with some of the, the deregulatory measures, and I look at the Telecommunications Act like you do, up there with, you know, the Commodities Futures Act and, uh, and Glass-Steagall is probably the three worst things oh. uh, that he did in his presidency. And he did them all in that second term, if I remember correctly. He, he didn't have um, to. That was the point. He didn't have to. Uh, and, 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 and the problem is we've had to live with that, and everybody seems to go through life fat, dumb, and happy and say, oh, well, he's the greatest. Well, he wasn't. And we have, first of all, we have to begin by being honest with ourselves. This idea of trying to create great American heroes is something that we're, we, we're drenched with. We wake up every day from the time we're a child looking for that great American hero that's going to solve things. Howard Zinn, Chalmers Johnson, those types of people, those are great American heroes. People like Tom Hartman, that's a great American hero. These are people that are on the front line talking about stuff that is difficult to talk about, and it's the same thing I tell my young lawyers, uh, Cliff. Well, if hey, they- Pap, yep. we've got to go, but I want to make sure people hear it again. The book is Law and Disorder. Mike Papantonio is somebody who does do that, does take on power. Get a copy. It's a terrific book. Great read. I'm in the middle of it, and I'm loving it. Thanks again, Mike. guest hosting for the great Leslie Marshall out today. We uh, just got done talking to Mike Papantonio, uh, did a great job, who had a lot of interesting things to say about his, his book, which I totally encourage you, you to read. I've been reading it, Law and Disorder. Upcoming, we've got Bob Seska a little bit later on and Josh 
Holland, but at the moment, we are lucky enough to have with us uh, a, what we call her, a CNN commentator, CNN.com writer, Daily Beast contributor, I believe, too, Sally Cohn. Are you with us? Hey, Cliff. It's so nice to hear your voice, man. Good to hear your voice, too. How you doing, Sally? Hey, I got, you know, no complaints if we forget about the election for a second. <laughs> okay, or, you know, that's, that's where I am, too. Syria or, uh, you know, I mean, there, there are a few things we could be unhappy about, but otherwise I'm fine. There you, well, that's good. I'm good to know that life yeah. outside of this crazy world that we inhabit as, as a work world, I guess we call it. Well, yeah. Uh, it's, it's getting us a little bit down, you know? That work world is a little crazy, too. So it's, it's, it's a tough time, you know, to be a person yeah. with conscience. But anyway. Uh, it but is, you know, that conscious thing will get you every time, Sally. Um, I know. Speaking Just of that, to get mine surgically removed. Yeah, what's that? <laughs> well, speaking of that, you wrote a great piece. Uh, this, this is a segue, which I think will probably fail, but we're going to do it anyhow. Um, yeah, you wrote you wrote a great piece on on Sharia law and Donald Trump. Sharia <laughs> being a, a spiritual part of religion. Let's call it partially your conscience. There's my segue. All right, um, there you go. I see, man. Uh, I just very crafty. A, uh, I just taped a, a segment with a. Uh, a, 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 a right-wing uh, host about the same topic. So let me tell you, I am like, you know, I kind of, I always, every once in a while, I forget what it was like to be on Fox in my Fox News days, and then I'm reminded. Uh, anyway, so yeah, what do you want yeah. to talk about? <laughs> I don't know. I want to talk about this first, but I may have to ask you a Roger Ailes question later, which oh, I'm sure you'll no. say no comment to, but that's okay. Well, you know, here's the thing. I'll sum, I'll sum up the points about Sharia in what I think is a fairly straightforward argument. But, you know, it, maybe it will be a straightforward conversation with you. It certainly isn't every time I have it with someone on the right. Uh, yeah. Which is, look, there's two points. One, when we use the word Sharia, we should know what we're talking about. Uh, that Sharia, not even with the word law attached, just Sharia is, mm-hmm. as I understand it, and by the way, I am not Muslim, not an expert on Islam, but I've tried to... Uh, learn and inform myself, and it it refers to the set of spiritual beliefs that Muslims believe in, and that can be many different things. There are lots of different forms, much like there are lots of different kinds of Jews, lots of different kinds of Christians. There are lots of different interpretations of Sharia. There's no one place you can go buy it and say, "Oh, that's Sharia." Uh, it right. means everything. For, it means contributing to charity. It means how many times you pray a day. It means not eating pork. But again, there are Muslims who eat pork. There are Muslims who cover their heads, Muslims who don't cover their heads. So it, it, it takes lots of interpretation. That's point number one. And by the way... That was very straightforward, I'll say, I to think start. So. Keep going. And even when even when people talk about Sharia law, they mean lots of different things, too. There's no one kind of Sharia law. People can mean, well, I like that those values inform my nation's laws. Just like, by the way, we Christians and Jews like that our nation, or our moral values inform our nation's laws, even though we actually don't want to literally put stoning in our laws, for instance. So it can mean a lot of different things. <laughs> That's point one. And point number two, again, should be somewhat obvious, but there are Muslims. When, when people like Trump or Newt Gingrich say we should ban all Muslims who believe in Sharia, well, guess what? That means you're banning all Muslims, because technically all Muslims believe in Sharia as is a value set, as a belief set of Islam. And as I point out in the piece, turns out there are progressive Muslims who believe in Sharia. I give the example of my progressive feminist lesbian friend who wears a hijab who believes in Sharia. 
believe it wow. has a little bit more. That's not the story we're that. told at all. Well, no, but and and you know, you tell this to our friends on the right, and they say, "Yeah, but they're the minority." Well, hey, even I call that a win because before you said they didn't exist. <laughs> right? That's right. Like, You're moving forward. You're changing interpretations already. Um, oh God, it's uh, driving me bonkers. It, well, and then you they say, well, you know, they're the minority. It's like, well, I don't know. They're kind of the majority of all the Muslims I know, and uh, I know a lot more Muslims than you do, so, right? That's right. You're, also, not, you're not hanging out with Muslims there at, like, you know, Newsmax.com parties, most likely. So, well, they I, I don't, find the Muslims who hate Islam, right? Yes, like they do with any group, right? It's always the, the ones that, that want that then can they can get away with saying, see, he's not a racist. He's attacking his own people. Or he's not anti-Semitic. He's attacking his own people. That, they love doing that one. Right. That's crap. Well, or also, yeah. or then I'm defending throwing gay people off roofs. Let me just be the first to say. That sounds like the kind of thing you would you personally would yeah. defend, knowing you. I'm, I'm very against throwing myself off a roof. Number one. <laughs> I mean, if there's like a really big mattress, if it's like that scene I mean, from like, you know, Lethal Weapon, right? maybe that would be fun, right? But no, the no, rest, no, 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 under no conditions do I support throwing NK people off any roof. Um, well, I meant you. You might want to throw yourself <laughs> off for fun if there's a nice bit. No, yeah. Okay, not sorry. Even at all. Not even at all. Uh, okay. you're, uh, you're, you're catching me at a moment, Cliff. No, but, um, and then, <laughs> all right, and then, and then here's the other little sort of uh, conceptual jujitsu is, and then it's, well, uh, but all Muslim nations are have backwards policies towards gay rights. And I'm like, okay, first of all, since when was, like, the, the people pointing this out in our country, the, the great heroes of gay rights, the great champions of gay rights, but even that aside. I, I know. I love it when the right points it out because they're all pushing, right? you know, Ted Cruz, right. loving those gay rights. Yeah. But then you point out, like, Uganda. Uganda, Christian country. Uh-huh. Where Christian ministers, by the way, encouraged, actively encouraged by churches in the United States. That's true, too. Very true. Punishable by death to be gay. And then, of course, it's, no, 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 but that's not inherent in Christianity. That's just Uganda. It's like, give me a friggin' break. Yes, is there... Actually, it's pretty inherent in... Well, yeah, right, it, exactly. it depends on what part of Christianity you may hit the nail on the head before, which is there are different kinds of Jews, there are different kinds of Muslims, there are different kinds of Buddhists. It really matters what your interpretation is of, of your sacred texts as well as, you know, whatever living, breathing documents you have. And your interpretation of those, I always found with this, you bring your cultural values or, you know, whatever way you want to look at that to the table. So you're looking for a justification to do some of the things that you probably want to do. I know it's more, more sort of, there's more to it than that. But no, you point out that's Uganda, that's, that's a perfect that's example. That's brilliant. Thank you. It's, it's, no, because it's, it's, look, I think I'm pretty consistent. I'm against fundamentalism in all states. Period. Yeah. I'm against fundamentalism. And the problem with the American right is that they want to rationalize fundamentalism in their religious tradition while but, demonizing it, and in fact, over broadly so, in others. That, and they never that, sort of see themselves in that mirror, do they? I mean, you know, what, what ISIS is doing, I'm not claiming what the Republican Party is doing right now is the same thing as ISIS, but the harder core members, every once in a while when they forget that they're not supposed to say certain things, sure, they will come out and say what should happen. I mean, there have been a number of them on the far extremes who have come out and made statements of that sort yeah. about gays being stoned or... You know, let's take a look right now, because I printed this up just to have this conversation with you. Oh, 31% of Trump supporters want gays and lesbians barred from entering the United States. Um, 
80% of Trump supporters want Muslims to be barred from entering the United States. You know, right. 70% of Trump supporters want the Confederate flag flying on state grounds. There's just a couple, you know. Right. Um, so yeah, these are the things you believe. Clear, Go ahead. They'll say, they'll say those are specious polls and specious interpretations of those polls. But so are the polls that the very same people cite to say the majority of the world's Muslims are radical extremists. So, right. uh, you know, and by the way, this is the part that kills me. It's like, if they're really true, you know, the, the majority, the majority of the world's 1.6 right. billion Muslims are akin to ISIS, we would notice. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. we wouldn't be trying to fight off the caliphate. Caliphate would have happened. Totally would have, like, I mean, this wouldn't be. That's, yeah, there's a lot of the, a lot of Muslims out there, so it is a very good point. They'd have to be really yeah. bad at taking stuff over if they all believe that. Right? I mean, um, I just don't. I just hey, don't, hey, here's a I good one, too, for you, Sally. Sorry, um, yeah, I'm in a mood. No, no, no. 16%. Oh, I am, too. 16% of Trump supporters think whites are a superior race. 14% aren't sure, think maybe. That gets you to 30%. Um, I, I again, mean, you know, like. Yeah, but you know what? Let's be clear. This isn't just Trump supporters, right? No, that's I mean, just the statistics I have in front of me. It's. I want to yeah. say. No, no, no. I know the poll you're citing. I mean. In other words, 30-something percent, 35, 37 percent of Democrats support Trump's ban on Muslims. Yeah, so, right. And that's important so to share because, here is, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, look, we wouldn't have the issues of systemic black inequality, racism, police violence, racial profiling. We wouldn't have these issues if it was just a fraction of conservatives or Trump supporters, right? The, the problem here is that these things affect all of us. No, you're right. You're right. It's, it's certainly more, more uh, those beliefs are more prevalent in certain areas. Trump, Trump seems to be like flypaper for them, but they are, well, yeah. they are outside of Trump also. You're you are 100% correct on that. Um, yeah, no, yeah, so he's I, inciting them, but he's inciting them in all of us. Yeah, it's true. It brings out the worst in all of us. Um, yeah. So... You're, that, that's a really interesting. I, I'm I'm really glad you wrote that. I want to. We're going to go to a break in a second, but I want to talk to you more okay. about it because why is it that more of us, and that includes me, I didn't know as much about Sharia before I read what you wrote. Why do I not know that? What are we missing? Sally Cohn. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. Eight 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 six Leslie. I'm filling in for Leslie Marshall, who is off today. We're on the phone with Sally Cohn right now, talking a little bit about her piece on Sharia law and Donald Trump's misunderstanding of it. Uh, Sally, you still there? I am indeed. Fantastic. How can I leave you? Oh, you're so kind. That's the love that we have, Sally. So um, much love. So much. So, you know, um, I was reading your piece, which is interesting. <laughs> What Trump was saying, actually, is that if you believe in Sharia law, you know, that's how we're going to weed out, the, the, I guess, those are the bad Muslims who don't come in. Um, but as you're pointing out, everybody believes in some form of Sharia law, as Sharia is a wide, uh, is not the, what, it's, it's not the one-stop shopping that uh, the Christian right is trying, or other right-wingers are trying to make it out to be. So 
I guess it well, was let me, to his... let me, let me correct one little nuance there, right? So okay. we want to use, we don't want to use the term Sharia and Sharia law interchangeably. That's right. Like that's, that's the first sort of, so uh, arguably all Muslims, any practicing Muslim believes in isn't even the, it's, it, you know, it, the, the, the articles of faith are Sharia. And again, there's different interpretations of it. But, but personal, the sort of, Sharia means the path. The personal path of spirituality uh, gotcha. is Sharia. And again, it has lots of different forms. Bear in mind, there's, there are women who uh, are practicing Muslims, believe in Sharia, who wear hijabs, and who do not. So just an example of lots of iterations of it. Then there's Sharia law. And Sharia law is that where it gets really, really complex. There's, you know, again, there's no, there's also not, a book. Here is Sharia law. There's not any singular interpretation. <laughs> there's no Sharia law for dummies out there? But, oh, sorry? No, there's, there's no Sharia law for dummies? Yeah, no, there's no Sharia law for dummies. There's different uh, iterations and incarnations, everything from Saudi Arabia, which, which you know, has a very extreme, right, you know, uh, fundamentalist interpretation of Islam and thus the adaptation of it into its laws. Yep. And then there's, uh, you know, Sharia law when people mean it in the sense of, yeah, I think we should encourage charity and giving and, you know, the sort of moral values in the same way that we might say we want Judeo-Christian laws to, or Judeo-Christian values to inform our laws. The problem is when Trump says anyone who quote-unquote believes in Sharia law, what he's doing is adapting a right-wing interpretation of polling that asks people around the world, well, do you believe that Sharia should inform your laws and people who say yes, they say, aha, you're a right-wing Muslim. You're a fundamentalist right. Muslim. Well, it's not true. It's not necessarily true for a lot of Well, he's Muslims, also appealing to the lowest common denominator, denominator right? Sorry, say that again? I mean, I just said he's appealing to lowest common denominator thinking, so when you've got towns in Oklahoma voting to ban Sharia law, right. not really knowing, just knowing it's an evil buzzword like liberal or Obama, uh, but what doesn't, they don't really know what it means. It becomes like this one-dimensional word that they can say everybody can get on the same page, and, and that's the other, is what it seems Well, the to be. right has always thrived, and the Republican Party has always thrived on fear-based otherizing politics. And the problem mm -hmm. is they keep losing their other. Uh, you know, it, it can't be women anymore. It can't be black people anymore. It can't be gay people anymore. So we've got immigrants and Muslims right now. Uh, Muslims we had to kind of invent. I mean, in a way, yeah. so did we with immigrants. Historically, they were not. Uh, the enemy, but have been up and down throughout history. Muslims, nobody really even thought about. Uh, and uh, it wasn't enough to just demonize radical Muslims, which we've been doing for some time and since 9-11 and that, you know. But no, no, we had to, under Trump, start going and making it even more broad, uh, which is scary and sad and unhelpful, by the way, to the actual fight to reform and, and progress within the face of Islam. Yeah, well, it also seems to lead to, to cases of violence in various places that we've all been reading about where ind innocent individuals are attacked. Uh, it has a real-life effect, as you know and I know, and I think many people know, And, and uh, but none of that sort of gives any pause to no. Trump and his backers. That They couldn't well, do less, it seems to me. And to me, that goes without saying. The larger thing that I find, I find genuinely vexing is, all right, we could argue on the numbers, who cares, but... You know, say there's 10, say there's, you know, hundreds, say there's a million, say there's tens of millions, hundreds of millions, which I would assert, and, and there's evidence of, 
of, pro- of progressive or moderate Muslims. What on God's green earth is the purpose in alienating them and instead attacking the entire faith, suggesting that all of Islam is, uh, is bad and evil and rotten at its core? What on earth? Purpose uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, I can only see it serving the purposes of uh, if you win by scaring people, you make money off of arms uh, and certain other things that many people that seem to make up the Republican Party these days. But yes, it doesn't serve any logical purpose if your goal is to not have people fight and die. No. Um, so that's why you're doing a service. I hope that um, you'll be going on CNN and various other places. We have you here, thankfully, but as many as possible to, to talk to people about this because, again, like I just think that the, the, the problem is is that I had a conversation. Mike Papantonio was on last half hour. We got to talking about the media, and a lot of the media isn't doing its job, and you know, nuance and context don't seem to be right. things that exist anymore. Um, this is, an well, this is yeah. a classic kind of thing that we could all use being informed about. And no, and you know what? To be honest, the thing I've thought more about uh, in the last couple of days, Cliff, is – uh, I mean, you know, hey, thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's great. I'm glad my piece is getting read and discussed. But the real problem is, is that there aren't uh, progressive, uh, faithful, uh, but, you know, pro-gay or gay feminist uh, Muslims who are in the media explaining these nuances. That's the, the only voices we're hearing from tend to be uh, you know, either the extremists being propped up by the right or the sort of uh, uh, Muslim, ex-Muslims uh, who the right likes to lift up to bash the faith Others. we were talking about earlier. Right. We don't have enough examples uh, that, that just fly in the face of the myths that the right is trying to propagate. It's like if you and I were trying to, to if we went on a road trip together and we tried to tell the story of the Ku Klux Klan, I don't think, you know, I'm not sure, guessing that uh, we'd have a lot of context there from our backgrounds. Um, <laughs> you kind of lost me with your metaphor, Cliff, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you, man. Just go with it. Me. My, point is, my <laughs> point is is that you need people who actually understand something to talk about it. I'm right. not saying that well, you, you and I have no but place ta- writing stories about the, the, the right, which point. we do. I but have a great place to go and talk about being white people. That would be something we're experts on. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we know that pretty well. Uh, yeah, and and I, mean, I guess that, that was all I was saying. Is that, you know, <laughs> I've been one my whole life. No, I know what you're <laughs> <saying>. um, <laughs> Yeah, actually, uh, uh, if you gone on with a good buddy of mine who's out there, Dean Obadala. Is, uh, uh-huh. You probably know Dean. I've been on his show. You've probably been on his show. I, I, mean, I we're lucky know to have him. Dean. Great example. Wish, you know, wish he was out there more. We need to clone Dean. Or, alternatively, we could just have more people come on and talk about these things. I think either yeah. would be good. I, no, I agree with you. Look, I, I think there are a lot of people that can bring context to, to stories and, and to, uh, to situations, to politics, but you need some people of that actual background sometimes. Yeah. You know, to, yeah. No, look at what um, with gay rights. It helps to actually have gay people in the media. Yeah. Yeah, made a big difference. You know, it's a, I, you know that no, I mean seriously, that was incredibly helpful. So yeah. we're going to have to go soon. So tell me, what do you have coming yeah. up next? Any anything uh, interesting you're writing about well, next? I'm going to try to survive this election. What do we have? Fifty-seven more days? Something like Not that. Not that I'm counting. Yeah. Not well, that I'm I hear counting. the music, so I think they're kicking us off. But it's been oh, awesome no. talking to you, Sally. Um, hey, the thank you for. Man. 
Thank you for explaining this to everybody and teaching us something. We needed it. Take care. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Good afternoon. This is Cliff Schechter. I am sitting in for Leslie Marshall and Leslie Marshall Show. Uh, we've had some great conversations. Hope you've been listening. Sally Cohn talked to us about Donald Trump's misunderstanding of Sharia, which goes up there along the long list of things Donald Trump misunderstands. We had a great conversation with Mike Papantonio about his new book, Law and Disorder, and about uh, some of the disorder in our media and politics. And now we are lucky enough to, if I am correct, have Bob Seska on the line. Bob is, uh, what is Bob? He does lots of stuff. He's a writer for Salon. He's a writer for the Daily Banter. He produces amazing films. He uh, is a slayer of Glenn Greenwald. What else do you do, Bob? <laughs> How you doing, Cliff? I'm doing well, man. Great to have you on. Yeah, I, uh, I've been called many, many worse names over the years, uh, many of which are currently existing on Twitter right now. Yeah, <laughs> I've seen some awesome ones. There's some people out there that, that seem amazingly perturbed uh, that here and there you, you choose to go just with the shirt and not the undershirt underneath. I'm not sure what this um, this movie yeah, that's, is. That's true. I don't know what the hell that is. I, you know, it's, there was a, there's a group called Chicks on the Right. It's a, uh, it's a conservative uh, duo, uh, these two women who have a Facebook page and they have a website. And evidently, they also have a radio show. And they were just, they were so offended by the V-neck shirt I was wearing in my Twitter profile pic that they just turned it into a whole thing. And what? I'm still trying to decipher that one. <laughs> I have no yes. idea what that even means. I, I yeah, well. Among millennials, uh, cargo shorts are forbidden now. So I, I know. I still love mine, so I guess that Gen X's me right away, huh? Yeah, but evidently among Republicans, V-neck shirts are forbidden. And, and having any sort of visible chest hair is, is a sin <laughs> of some sort. I don't know where that is in the Bible, but it is. Is it? Is it maybe it's something to do with the V-neck? Uh, is it if it's, uh, I don't know, if it's a sort of tight enough shirt or something, it makes it tougher to goose step? <laughs> that may be so. It wasn't brown. I, I wasn't wearing a brown shirt, unfortunately, so... <laughs> they, they don't like that when you don't wear the brown you shirt. You couldn't switch to Commandant uh, Ready very quickly. That could be the problem. Though. That's right. Um, well, listen, you've been writing a lot of great pieces. I was all ready to talk to you about, and we still absolutely can, this piece you wrote that I really enjoyed on uh, how the right was so willing to go after Max Cleland and others uh, when they were back when you know the, the talking points were to be very much in favor of the Iraq War. Now the talking points are to be against it, uh, they do just the opposite, which, which really, in the end, it kind of reminds me of the economic stuff, which is they're for free trade, now they're against it. The only thing that really seems to be constant is that they're white and angry and don't like people that aren't white and angry. Would that be, I, I don't know. You tell me. Well, why don't you talk a little bit about that piece, and we'll, we'll see what, we can, what conclusions we can come to. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, 
what struck me, one of the many things that struck me as, as truly obnoxious and abhorrent uh, during uh, Trump's appearance on NBC last week when, uh, during the Commander-in-Chief Forum was the fact that he has, and he's been doing this throughout his campaign, he's been vocally critical of the Iraq war and the decision to go to a war there, which, yeah, I mean, I, I th in theory, we should be supporting that. That should be something that we agree with Trump about. The, th the, the thing is, the thing that bothers me about this is that Trump is the Republican Party nominee. He is the representative at the presidential level of a party that spent uh, the better part of a decade, the previous decade, uh, uh, villainizing anyone who spoke out against the Iraq War, anyone who challenged the Bush administration on the decision to invade and occupy that country as a response to 9-11 or as a, uh, a means of going after non-existent uh, WMD, and, and all of the different reasons that they cited. And one of those people, one of the people who were blacklisted, during the early days of the Bush administration, during the early part of the run-up to the Iraq War, was a, uh, a U.S. senator by the name of Max Cleland from the state of Georgia, who was a Democrat. And yeah. Max Cleland was not supportive of the Bush administration's motives. He was not supportive of the Iraq War and, and said so uh, going in. And, and, of course, the 2002 midterms were a disaster for him because the Bush administration targeted him with ads in which they compared him to Saddam Hussein and they compared him to Osama bin Laden. And they said he didn't have the, literally, this is the quote, he didn't have the courage to lead. Right. Max yeah, this Cleland, is the context here. Those of you yeah, tell the context. Max Cleland is a Vietnam War veteran. He fought in the Battle of Quezon as a captain in the U.S. Army. As On Hill 471 in April of 1968, he was getting out of a helicopter, and he noticed that there, there was a grenade, an unexploded grenade on the ground at his feet. Wasn't sure whether it was his that had fallen off of his flak jacket or if it was someone else's or if the enemy had fired it in and it just hadn't exploded. And he went to pick it up, and it, it detonated and blew off his, his left arm and both of his legs. Uh, which that sounds like a pretty wimpy guy to me. Were amputated later on by medical doctors. And so he, for this, he obviously received the Purple Heart. In addition to all of that, uh, Max Cleland also uh, went away from Vietnam uh, with a Bronze Star and a Silver Star and was, by all accounts, a hero of the Vietnam War. This guy left three limbs in Vietnam, and the Bush administration, led by two men, George W. Bush and Dick Cheney, who both somehow were able to sidestep the Vietnam War. Uh, well, I think um, in, in, uh, Bob, you know, in, in, in Bush's defense, were, I, I, I think... Um, being ...courageous enough to lead, and therefore uh, Cleland's opponent, Sax Chambliss, Saxby Chambliss, uh, won that election in 2002 and sent uh, Max Cleland, who should still today, if he chose... Should still be serving in the U.S. Senate at the very least because of his heroism in Vietnam, and, and not only that, because he was right on this this one big issue, uh, which uh, now the Republican Party seems to be championing after all of that time, saying that it was unpatriotic and with the terrorists to oppose everything the Bush administration was doing. And I find right. this to be uh, inexcusable. I think yep. it's something that I, I think the Republican Party owes Max Cleland an apology. I think it owes many Democrats an apology, people who opposed that Iraq war and who were actually correct and who were blacklisted in that time. I'm sure, uh, Cliff, you received your fair share of, uh, yeah. of angry people coming to you and telling you that you should, uh, 
you should move to Canada or you should leave the country if you don't like what Yeah, you commie, yeah, you, yeah, exactly. Um, and so that, that's happening all around. So, I mean, the, the point being is that I think apologies are in order, at the very least, for, for American heroes like Max Cleland, uh, who were blacklisted. I would agree. And it's good to remember also that George Bush at the time, was, instead of being in Quezon, was fighting the the war of the Dallas swimming pool, where he had to find them each nice swimming pool to go. Saxby Chambliss, who won that election and, and just retired. He retired in 2014, after the 2014 midterms. Saxby Chambliss also got a deferment from the uh, Vietnam War because of a bum knee, uh, like a high school football injury. And we've heard that one many, many times. I think Trump's deferment has similar circumstances. He had an injured foot or something. Yeah, didn't he, yeah, wasn't it a foot thing? Even though he played and, sports, and he found, yeah. guy had the audacity to put his name to an ad that called a guy who left three limbs in Vietnam not having the courage to lead. Well, that's what I mean. It's, it's obscene to me. It should be obscene to anybody. I remember it was obscene back then, and, and of course, then they went on and, and did similar things to John Kerry in 2004, somebody, again, who had the courage to actually go and be there and put his life on the line. Uh, well, you know, Dick Cheney was getting his five deferments, and my favorite story of all, the, we're going to have the future Congresswoman Liz Cheney, it seems, soon from Wyoming. Well, Liz Cheney, it, I think it's Liz, maybe it's her sister, is largely in existence because... When it stopped being a good enough excuse just being married, and you had to be married with child, about nine, ten months later, Liz Cheney was born. That's actually serious. That's how yeah. Cheney stayed out of Vietnam. I think it was Liz. It may have been the other one, but the story is definitely true, which is, you know, he found out he was, being married was no longer good enough, had to have a child. He got right to it, which is a disgusting thought, but, good you know. Lord. <laughs> There's a good reason to have children avoiding the war. Well, I guess I guess many people did that, but I mean, obviously, the hypocrisy at the end of the day is then. Well, that's that's what I care about, and then questioning their patriotism if they refuse to. Yeah, I mean, that's what I care about. It's completely legitimate to question that war and to not serve in that war because I think it was wrong on all counts. It's kind of like Iraq, but. To be somebody who was pro-Iraq and attacking other people's patriotism and then had to have gotten out of service as much as possible, a la Donald Trump, George W. Bush, Dick Cheney. I mean, you can go on and on with that list. Uh, shameless group. McConnell, right? Yeah. Um, all right. Well, listen, we've got a, a, we're hitting a one-minute break point. We're going to take a quick break, Bob. We're going to come back, and I want to talk about your other more recent piece on the media. We've been beating them up today, and they deserve even more of it, quite frankly. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Everybody, once again, this is Cliff Schechter filling in for Leslie Marshall on the Leslie Marshall Show. We are lucky enough to have on the line right now. Uh, we have an author, writer, all-around agitator, Bob Seska. Bobby, you still with me, man? <laughs> I'm still here, Cliff. Awesome. Um, so we, we were last talking, we were talking about your piece and and the fact that uh, the Republican Party's done done a 180 on Iraq. Um, Trump, as we know, has lied consistently about his position in Iraq. He got away with it with Matt Lauer the other night. He also has, has been lying about pretty much everything else. And so I wanted to change to a slight other issue because we have 
a caller on the line. We have Gregory from Columbus, and he wanted to talk about uh, Paul Ryan and uh, Pence and their their unwillingness to reject this racist, not to mention uh, to call out uh, David Duke and maybe actually even refer to him as deplorable. Gregory, are you with us? Yes, I am. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Um, sure. What I, find, what I find funny, first of all, I think that the Republican Party, they first need to have a mirror, and they need to sit in front of that mirror for 30 minutes and not say anything, because they need to look into their souls. You have a candidate who Paul Ryan has come out and said is racist, but refuses to say anything, denounce him, but yet they want to make a comment about what Hillary Clinton said. Well, what do you think about that, Bob? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I know obviously why they're uh, refusing to denounce uh, Trump's candidacy uh, entirely, which is because if Trump wins, they've got to work with this guy. They, they, and so it's basically a similar reason why the, the press tends to acquiesce to villains like, like Trump more often than not, because they need the access. And so, you know, the Senate and, and House leadership can't possibly, uh, uh, you know, uh, stand in the way of Donald Trump and then expect Donald Trump to to work with them once he's elected. So there's a little bit of that going on. Obviously, too, they're they're doing this. What they're doing, I mean, overall, the Republican Party is trying desperately to turn this ridiculous, amateurish, completely incompetent person running for president, you know, on top of his incompetent campaign, into something that is normal. I mean, they're basically. Uh, trying to normalize by, by continuing to support him, uh, guys like Paul Ryan and uh, and and even Mitch McConnell are you know basically legitimizing someone who should never who has no business whatsoever being on the presidential stage or in or in national politics at all. So it's it's all about saying you know what we're okay. We're, we're, there's no confusion over here on the Republican side when we all know that there absolutely is. Yeah, and, and I mean, you look at go ahead, Greg. It's interesting because uh, when Obama came out in '08, and they made him distance himself for Jeremiah Wright. You got a candidate on the on the right that has stated that one can that one candidate's father was involved in assassination. He talked about Jeb Bush's mother. He called uh, Marco Rubio little. And as a military vet, a retired, honorably discharged military vet, the things that this man has said, my question is to the Republican Party, all these folks that are supporting are they going to allow their, their children to go and sign up? And will they be there when the bodies come back? This man well, I mean, talks about... That, you, you bring up a really good point, and, and that is, first of all, I mean... How the hell does Trump get away with saying all these things? I mean, just day after day, uh, hour after hour, practically. I mean, you're a veteran. The guy has made fun of veterans. He's, he's actually thrown veterans under the bus, too, whether it was John McCain or anyone else. Uh, and, and the problem is, is that none of this is really put into proper perspective. Like, none of this, I mean, I don't understand how Trump gets a pass at every, every turn, every time he says something crazy like what he said about John McCain, how he's not utterly disqualified. Why, why is there not an outcry like there was when Howard Dean made one strange yelping noise into an open microphone in 2004, and that was the end of his campaign? 
Trump does crap like that every other day. Oh, you know, every other day. Every day. <laughs> Literally every day. What is the difference here? I, I'm not catching why he gets the uh, gets a free pass to do what do and say whatever the hell he wants. But yet, uh, other candidates, Republicans and Democrats alike, have been uh, tossed off the presidential stage for doing far uh, less egregious things. When uh, remember, remember, you're old enough like me to remember. Remember when George H. W. Bush got in trouble for looking at his watch during a debate? Yeah, and, uh, Al Gore got in trouble for sighing or walking <laughs> over to George W. Bush during the two, one of the 2000 debates. I mean, these are little things that happen in, in presidential elections that we can verifiably look at and chart how a candidate did that thing, and then the poll numbers just bottomed out. Uh, Al Gore fell behind. You know, it, at the very least, even if polls didn't bear this out, the press was just relentless in saying this is the end of the campaign. I mean, yep. when John Kerry was attacked by the Swift voters, that was the end of the campaign. Uh, or when John Kerry didn't respond right away to the Swift voters, then he was letting them win, and that was it for him. Uh, it this happens all the time. But it doesn't happen with Donald Trump. Donald Trump, during the primaries, would say something egregious, and then his poll numbers would go up. When it got to the general election... He said he said a bunch of things that were egregious after coming out of the conventions. His poll numbers actually went down, which was surprising to observe. Uh, but now um, he's being graded on this curve. He's a month in. The press needs some sort of change in the narrative. So the press is, is, is injecting this. And I'm talking specifically about the political press is injecting uh, this idea that not only is Trump redeeming himself by using a teleprompter and doing some things finally uh, in, within the bounds of normal presidential politics, but also that Hillary Clinton is, is, uh, t- is bottoming out with a uh, right. basket of deplorables and uh, having pneumonia, which is evidently a... Uh, it's a crime a, now you know, in presidential politics. pass against presidential politics. I don't know what's going on with that. But what the, the way it's being portrayed is being some sort of horrendous thing in terms of uh, transparency. Two days. She went two days without d- disclosing pneumonia. Donald Trump went 15 months, a 15-month campaign without releasing his tax returns or legitimate medical records. Yep. I mean, I, I, all that's so true. And I, I want to talk to you more. We'll do this another time because we're coming up to a break here, Bob. But. You know, you hear Matt Bevin in Kentucky who's been saying some of this terrible stuff, and, and I can't stand how they try to make it like Trump's an anomaly. He's just the perfect distillation. He's not an anomaly. All right, thanks for being on, buddy. Talk soon. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back. This is Cliff Schechter filling in for Leslie Marshall on the Leslie Marshall Show. We're in our last half hour. Talked to a couple great people, part of our little basket of deplorables. I think I just made that up, didn't I? Um, let's get to the last one of the group. We've got Josh Holland on the line. Josh is a uh, writer for the nation, all-around thinker, dog owner. What else do you do, Josh? Well, that should do it. That's a good summary. 
<laughs> Actually, I, I kid. You're an amazing writer. So, and, and you know lots of stuff, which is why I'm having you on. Um, I make it my business to know stuff. It's good because I don't just hear this stuff. You know, there's, there's people coming up with crazy uh, uh, theories from the right, but it's happening a lot on the left, too, these days as you and I find out on certain groups we're a part of. And um, I hear all sorts of nutty theories about why things are going to happen and why they're not. So I thought I would just talk to you, if that's okay. You wrote a piece on white working class voters for, for Rolling Stone recently um, and why, you know, why they vote the way they do, what they're, why they think the way they do. And you actually did some research and stuff and didn't just pull that out of your nowhere. So I thought I might ask you about that. You know, Cliff, the thing that I find most, uh, that most people get wrong about white working class voters is this idea that it is a cohesive social identity, right? That white working class people are like African Americans. They have a common experience. And what you see is that there's really, really, really obvious regional differences. If you have a non-college educated white guy in the south of Boston, his lived experience, his cultural upbringing, his political orientation is going to be completely different than a white person without a college degree in California or a white person without a college degree in Alabama. And when you look at this narrative that the Democrats have a white working class problem and you break it down by region, you get a very different picture, which is that the Democrats get crushed among this group, absolutely crushed among this group in the Deep South. They are, they are not even competitive with this group in the mountain states. The Republicans have a problem with white working class voters, on the other hand, in the Pacific states. The Republicans have a problem with white working class voters in the Northeast. And in the rest of the country, it's relatively competitive. They, you know, you see Republicans have a small advantage, but it's not one of these lopsided things. And this is all stuff that I pulled out of um, out of Ames, the American National Election, uh, the, the, the Ames database, uh, looking uh-huh. at 2012 party ID. So it's not a simple story. And I actually like that you did that because, well, also it's nice for people to learn things, which is good. But, I mean... Uh, the the media, many people in the media want to tell that it's, you know, simple is easier, right? You know, working class all believe this and do that. But it shows a, a, a sort of a lack of, of history because if you know this country, you know that, that we, we did fight a civil war. And there were yeah. some major disagreements among working class people in different regions of the country. We've always been a country that, is, that has strong regional identities. And, yeah, maybe they've changed a little, you know, lessened a little as people have moved around. Uh, you know, and there's and, and maybe with, you know, the onset of uh, the communications age, there's a little more of a common experience, but there's still very different lived regional realities. And why? I mean, I don't know. I guess in a way I'm asking the same question. Uh, or why is it that you think that so many people in the media have sort of just forgotten that? Is it just easier? Well, yeah, you know, I think that there are that these narratives develop and we all talk to each other and they become entrenched. So I don't know, for example, why um, we would be so, because it is almost, there is almost an obsession among, among media pundits, among, you know, our, our crowd of people, political observers, with the white working class. But if you look at the non-white working class, 
um, you know, they tend to do worse in terms of incomes, in terms of, uh, you know, retirement security, health insurance, et cetera, et cetera. And yet we focus on this group of white working class voters. Meanwhile, as the size of this group has declined significantly, it used to be that, uh, you know, something like 70% of white people didn't have a college degree. Uh, that number has dec- declined dramatically in the last right. 20 or 30 years. So this is a group that is becoming smaller. And, um, you know, the other thing that I would point out, and I noted this in, in the piece, is that if you look at Democrats' share of of this of the white working class vote, it tends to rise and fall pretty much consistently with the uh, with the Democrats' share of white voters overall. So you don't see these great divergent results where white working people are going one direction and college-educated whites are going in another. Now we've heard quite a bit in this election. That college that that may be an exception, but I'm very wary until we actually see the results. Yeah, I appreciate that, and again, I, that's why I'm glad you're bringing this up because I I can be guilty of this sometimes, um, which is you know just lumping it all together. The other thing that I think is an egregious thing that I see some people who you know of our group or not of our group of people in the media do is they just throw out working class voters, and when they say that, they always mean white. Yes, <laughs> as if there isn't a vibrant non-white working class. <laughs> right, it, it's really amazing because if you look at non-white working non-white working class voters, of course, Democrats have a very significant advantage with that group. Right. So, uh, so that's important, and that was a that was a pretty cool uh, piece that you wrote. Um, we've talked somewhat about polling. There are people who freak out here and there, and you tend to be a voice of reason on this. What do you think about uh, things in general right now? Well, you know, I, I keep hearing that this vote, that this race should be a blowout, that, you know, Clinton should be ahead of Donald Trump by 70,000 points. And <laughs> in one sense, that's true. Coming from a, a rational, liberal perspective, you look at Donald Trump, and he is a toxic clown. And you say, of course, you know, a mainstream Democrat, even a flawed mainstream Democratic candidate, should be up by 20 points. But if you look at it from another perspective, the race is pretty much where I think most political scientists, for example, would expect it to be. If you look at the so-called fundamental models, these are models that instead of relying on polling, they look at economic numbers, the president's approval rating, stuff like this. The Republicans coming into this year had should have had a slight advantage. Um, they were they were slight favorites to win in 2016. But we know that Donald Trump is not a mainstream candidate. We know that Donald Trump is has been going around alienating key groups in really dramatic ways at some at times, and so he's been hovering. It's a 42% range in, in all of the polling averages, 42 43%. He got a little bit above that right after the Republican convention. That's typical of the kind of bounce. But yeah. besides that, you know, it's pretty much we see him paying the penalty that he should be paying in a, in a society that's very polarized, right? So in reality, we know that, you know, we are – 
we are very, very partisan at this point. Even even independents, most independents are so-called closet partisans, where they consistently vote for one party or the other. So, you know, if you think about it, there is there should be a floor for anybody who becomes a nominee of a major party. They could dig up, you know, Hitler's desiccated corpse and put an R <laughs> on it or D on him, and he should be getting like forty. Per- there's a there's a floor of where and he'd probably be in Trump's cabinet. Are, What's that? And Trump would probably put him in the cabinet if we're going to be serious. Here. Okay. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry, Hitler's yeah, desiccated corpse. The, the head of the uh, <laughs> the deportation force, right? Yes, exactly. That one that's definitely going to happen if he gets elected. Okay. Um, when you look at where the polling is, yeah, it's looking like it's going to be something like a 2012 result with the Democrats winning by four four or five points it should be it should not be a, a 20 point blowout that's that was that was the type of thing that we saw when we were much less polarized where people were yeah. much less likely to 60s vote 70s 80s well, yeah exactly although i still think 60s yep i still think that that i mean we'll see i still think that when you when you factor in one side's digital and ground game versus the lack of one on the other, as well as a few other factors. I I don't think it's going to be 20. I don't even think it's going to be 12 or whatever. I still think it could be an eight or nine point race in the end. You know know what? I I can't agree with you enough. That's another really important point is that we're all talking about polls or polling models that include – uh, those fundamental factors that I was talking about. But really, nobody knows what happens when you have uh, one campaign running a real campaign with a data operation and a get-out-the-vote operation and lots of field offices, and another one like, well, I'll just tweet things out. So, <laughs> darts at the, yeah. This could have a really significant impact, and we can kind of guess there have been attempts to model how significant... Uh, uh, the ground game is in terms of the results, but uh, this is a fuzzy area, and I think that we're, you know, your guess is as good as mine. So I, I think that there's a chance that Hillary Clinton could, you know, there's a chance that Donald Trump could win. Yep. Not impossible. And there's a chance that Hillary Clinton could win in a blowout. And the most likely result is what I was talking about, four or five. I think, yep. All right. So we're about to go to a break, Josh. We'll come on back. Let's talk some more about this, some other things. Thanks for being here. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. Sitting in for Leslie Marshall on the Leslie Marshall Show. We are talking to Josh Holland right now, uh, smart guy, writer for The Nation, Rolling Stone, many other places. Josh, you with me, my friend? I am with you, Cliff. So we have a question. I wanted to bring in Paul from Washington, who I think has Great. something to ask us. Oh, Paul, hey, are you with me? All right. How are you doing? Good. Well, I, I got a comment, and then I got a, a couple comments here. The first thing about the polling. You had to talk about that. I don't think it's as close as as it's so, so, as it's being uh, presented 
the reason I think that is um, if it were, if Trump had a solid, let's say, 40 percent, he seems to be stuck between 38 and maybe 42. Yep, that's about right. Clinton bounces around, has been as over 50. Well, let's say that it were, it were really heavily weighted on Hillary Clinton. Even if Hillary Clinton had 60 and Trump had 40, let's say that was that, it, then Trump would still have to come out ahead in some of these polls once in a while, just by the nature of drawing lots. If it were as close as it, people really think it is, he should be coming out ahead a lot of times. He's only come out ahead in one poll last week, the CNN poll, where he was 45-43. And if you use this analogy, take a lot of little, a lot of little blue pills and a lot of little red pills and put them in a fishbowl. Make it weighted on the blue side, like 600 blues and 400 reds. Mix them all up and pull them out, handfuls. Sometimes the reds should come out ahead. I mean, even, even sometimes a lot ahead. Just by the nature well, of the way let's, you draw let's see what, uh, let's see what Josh thinks about that. Joshua, what do you think, my friend? Well, I'll, I'll, let me just throw this out there. If you look at an average of the major polling averages, people should focus on the averages rather than individual polls. The final polling averages had uh, Barack Obama up by a point and a half in 2012. Right. And the results were a four-point victory. So it's really possible that there are people being... Uh, kind of lost in the sampling process. There's a lot of factors that make, I think, this race a little harder to pull than other races. For example, they set up these likely voter screens. They try to figure out who's actually going to go and vote. But you have a non-mainstream candidate in Donald Trump. He's, he's you know, making a lot of people furious. There are all of these efforts to register Muslim voters. There are all these efforts to register Latino voters who typically vote in low numbers. How all of that is going to play out is yet to be seen. I agree with the caller. Was it Paul was your name? Yeah. I agree with Paul, and I, I don't think that this race is as close as people are making it out to be. I think all if three of us agree the, on at, that. Yeah. If you look at the fact that... Go ahead, Josh. Trump has stuck to this kind of ceiling, um, you know, he yep. has to do a lot. He has to make a lot of inroads into this last little bit of undecided voters, and I don't see it. Uh, Doc, let me ask you a question here. Can I get one in? Yeah. There? Josh is here, sure. Oh, okay. Here. Right. I'd like to see, maybe, maybe Josh has seen this, but I would like to see uh, a correlation between a difference in national popular vote and how it translates into electoral votes. For instance, if you look at Obama in 2012, he had a four-point difference, and that translated to uh, a 338 to 206 victory, 132 electoral vote difference. In 2008, he had a seven-point uh, popular vote over McCain, and he really smeared them 365 to 173 in the electoral college. So I'd like to see a correlation about that. If you saw the, uh, if you saw the uh, uh, Washington Post poll last week where they did a, a huge poll with 74,000-plus uh, respondents across 50 states, Hillary Clinton, they, gave, they said, was a secure with 244 electoral votes, Donald Trump 120, and if you split... The remaining 174 electoral votes up for grabs, evenly, that comes about just to be like 2012, 
with Hillary at 331 and Trump at 207. So what do you think of that? When I say that I think it's going to be a close race, I am talking about the popular vote. Democrats have a built-in advantage in the Electoral College votes um, just due to the to the realities of which states are blue, which states are red, and how many Electoral College votes they have. I think that it's very likely that it's not going to be a close race when you look at Electoral College votes. Uh, I'm just talking about the popular vote. Yeah, you know what else I would jump in here and say, which is interesting, Josh, is I don't know if you know, have seen all the different states where Gary Johnson is on or not on or if he's on in every state. But before we go into that, when it comes to Jill Stein, who obviously would hurt Hillary Clinton the most, um, she's not on the ballot in Nevada, North Carolina, or Georgia. Well, those are three kind of interesting. I mean, Georgia may not end up meaning mattering, but we don't know yet. But certainly North Carolina and Nevada are two of probably the four closest swing states right now. That could be interesting. Well, yeah, I just finished a piece that's coming out in the Nation magazine uh, I think on the 21st, look, and I looked back at all of the polling versus final results for third-party candidates since Ralph Nader in 2000. And what I found is that, you know, three out of four people, if you look at the last three election cycles, three out of four people who said, I'm going to vote for a Jill Stein or a Ralph Nader who ran in 2004, 2008, um, uh, who, who said that they were going to run, uh, vote for a third-party candidate did not. So a lot of this support is an expression of dissatisfaction with the major parties. And then when you get closer to the election, what happens is people become risk-averse. And they say, wait a second, what if my vote actually tips things? To, you know, I mean, and maybe that's not rational. Yep. In most states it's not. But what you see in in reality is that you know, Jill Stein was polling at about where she was, is polling now about where she was in 2012, to 3%, and she got 0.3%. So I don't think Jill Stein is going to be a big factor. No, I, I agree with you. I'm just saying I think obviously she'll be even less of one in those states. So, yeah, you know, and, and, and those are two of the four closest. Ballot. You're right. So, so there's that. It's funny. I remember 1980 early memory for me, like when they were separating the kids, I think it was in third grade or something, you know, who, who his parents are for Reagan and who's are for Carter. And I was like, where do I go? My parents are for John Anderson. You know, and there's like nobody else but me. And, uh, and then when it came down to it, my, but in the end, they both, they both voted and they both voted for different people, but he ended up voting for Reagan the last time, by the way, he voted Republican for president, and she ended up voting for Carter because they both knew that, uh, you know, Anderson wasn't going to matter. So there's a little anecdote, but I think that a lot of people and in, in studies show that. Um, yes. any, so we're getting down to the last minute here, Josh. Any other quick predictions? Well, anything? you know, it is it is always a very difficult thing to call. I will say this, uh, just in a short short moment, I'll say that everybody talks about whether Trump's support is about racism or economic insecurity. This is the worst, like, you know, false dichotomy. These things are inextricably linked. When you're blaming the other for your problem, you probably have problems. You're probably less likely to look for others to scapegoat when you're doing fine. And the other thing is, there's a third factor, which is celebrity. 
that nobody seems to think has any role in the fact that this guy became a major party nominee, and I think. Hey, thanks, Josh. We're about to be gone. This is no ordinary sub shop. This is Firehouse Subs. Welcome to Firehouse. Tired of overpriced lunches that underdeliver on flavor? Head to Firehouse Subs, where for a limited time you can get a $4.99 choice sub. Choose from a medium smoked turkey, Virginia honey ham, or roast beef. They're custom-made hot subs at a price ready-made to make you smile. Just $4.99, only at Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs, save more lives. Participating locations plus tax limited time offer prices may vary for delivery. This is no ordinary sub shop. This is Firehouse Subs. Welcome to Firehouse. Tired of overpriced lunches that underdeliver on flavor? Head to Firehouse Subs, where for a limited time you can get a $4.99 choice sub. Choose from a medium smoked turkey, Virginia honey ham, or roast beef. They're custom-made hot subs at a price ready-made to make you smile. Just $4.99, only at Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs, save more lives. Participating locations plus tax limited time offer prices may vary for delivery.